us everyone welcome to the charvak podcast this is your host kushal mehra all right today's podcast is on a very specific legal uh, change that has happened in a very specific area in the united states of america today's topic is the seattle cast legislation or some people call it the seattle cast ban twitter had a hashtag which was not seattle cast legislation it had a hashtag seattle cast ban when i was searching for hashtags that are available on twitter so uh for people who don't know about it maybe uh i can just share the screen of what the proposed amendment is uh if uh, you guys don't mind so so basically this is what the proposal is uh amendment a version 1 to cb 120511 cast as a protected class the sponsor is council members herbal and savant and basically this is the amendment so i've just put it up on screen if and uh, ever i need to use this as a reference point i will put it on the screen so that you guys can also check it out and to talk about it i have two members of the hindu american foundation suhag shukla and samir kalra welcome thanks, thanks kushal thanks for having us kushal great to be here so uh, now for the uninitiated because we should always go with the working assumption that people in india may not know or or i will go a step further Indians in America may also not know about this <laughs> because you know, people of Indian origin may not know about this. So, uh, Suhak, you can start. What is the Seattle caste legislation, or as we called it, uh, what it is basically the Amendment A, Version One to CB One Two Zero Five One One. Wow, you have it memorized. So, in the United States, uh, the Constitution obviously uh, it starts there. That is the law of the land, and it makes the promise of equal protection under the law and due process. So, equal protection, just like it sounds, means that everyone will be treated the same or equally, um, regardless of what background they come from. And due process is just kind of a general idea of fairness that laws. um will give people a clear idea of what they're obligated to um you know how they're the norms that they're obligated to act within and it also gives those who are implementing the laws clarity as to how to implement them and that in implement in impl- implementing them um it's going to be fair and transparent so that's just kind of a broad overarching starting point now the united states has by no means um lived up to the promises of these things but they are the ideal that we're supposed to strive for and i would say that the country has made great strides towards this especially in uh, the last 50 to 75 years so for equal protection how does it uh come into play at the local level or at the state level because we're talking about a federal constitution well there are what are called non-discrimination policies non-discrimination in certain places in the workplace in public accommodation meaning when you rent a hotel or if you go to a restaurant or um in housing when you rent or buy or sell these are the areas in which um different levels of the uh governance or the government have said that these are the places that you can't discriminate against other people on these bases race uh gender national origin age um sexual orientation and um ethnicity so there's a, a number of these different types of uh classes that are very broad that essentially can apply to anyone so that if you're working in uh 
you know, whatever a company that you know that you're going to um, have a fair chance in terms of your uh, opportunity to be hired, uh, the types of opportunities you get in that working environment in terms of um, opportunities for growth and promotion, and you're not going to be treated in a manner where even if you're just trying to do your work, your you know, obstacles are thrown in your way or the environment is made so hostile because of your background. So that's kind of non-discrimination law in a nutshell uh, into where these laws kind of take place. So what's happened in Seattle is that national origin, ancestry, ethnicity, all of these categories that would probably more specifically kind of govern the behavior, say, between people of Indian origin and also protect them against discrimination, they've decided to add a separate standalone category of caste. Okay, so does that mean now it is an immutable characteristic, if I was to ask you a legal question? Samir, do you want to take that or do you want me to take it? Uh, sure, go ahead. <clears throat> okay, so immutability is definitely um, one of the factors in some of the classes that are already there. Uh, so take something like race, right? Immutability, it's it's if, if you're looking at, say, something like skin color or hair texture, those are immutable characteristics. But there are also categories like religion, for instance, that are not necessarily immutable. So while immutability has been um, a factor in deciding whether a class makes sense uh, in terms of needing protection, um, it's not always necessary. However, the way in which some of the activists that have pushed this, uh, they have made the argument that caste is immutable. So, and just for the clarity of people who must be wondering what immutable means, so immutable basically means uh, unchanging uh, effect, an effect that is cast in stone and cannot change forever. So, for example, gender or sexuality is considered immutable even under American law. I forgot which specific legislation it was because I remember of all the people I was having a chat with Razib Khan once and Razib was like, I don't remember which things are immutable under American law. And I, I think it was about the the gay wedding cake discussion when Razib and I were talking about this. And if I remember correctly, uh, for sure, I remember gender is considered immutable by American law then, but I don't know now whether they would consider gender immutable <laughs> because gender is fluid now in America. So I don't know about Maybe that. Maybe you could say but... that about sex in the current environment, at least okay. for some people. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So, all right. So now that we know about the, legislation at a base level. Samir, what are the legal ramifications of the legislation? Sure. So I think at the outset, it's a distinct departure, as Suhag was mentioning, of all other non-discrimination laws in that on the face of it, the law itself is, does not apply equally to everybody. So it only applies to a small subset of people. Now, originally, of course, that was South Asian. 
there was a technical amendment that was added and there were a couple of other groups that were added in there. I think Southeast Asian, um, I believe Suhag and uh, maybe a, a, like an African, um, North African group or some other group as well. So basically uh, a bunch of groups that are not white. Um, but uh, that being said, again, it's targeting a small set of minorities and it doesn't apply to, yeah, here we go. Thank you. Middle East, Nigeria, Somalia, and Senegal. Um, so if you look at this now, it still doesn't say, basically, it's not a law that applies to every American, regardless of what your background is. It's a very small subset of groups. So on the face of it, it's discriminatory right there and then, because all our laws, whether it's gender or non-discrimination laws, gender, race, ancestry, national origin, disability, sex, sexual orientation, et cetera, they are all, they apply to everybody. So for instance, you can be a Caucasian um, person working in, an, in a company and you can file a discrimination case against an African-American boss or against an Asian-American boss. It doesn't matter and vice versa and all kind of mixtures in between. So it applies to everybody. Cast will by how it's been defined in this legislation and how it's generally understood will not apply to everybody. It will only apply to these subsets of groups and in particular South Asians, even though I hate the terminology South Asian, but for this purposes, we'll use South Asian. Um, in India, we call it Akhanda Bharat. Yeah, Akhanda Bharat. That's, that's my, <laughs> my dad is from Pakistan originally. I like that terminology. <laughs> um, so, uh, so that, you know, right then and there, that's a problem. That's number one. Number two, how is this going to be applied? What is the evidentiary standard going to be used to determine if somebody makes files a claim under this new law? that they have faced uh, some sort of caste discrimination. What is going to be the evidentiary standard that's used to determine, you know, what somebody's caste is in the first place? And if they say that, hey, I don't have any caste identity, I don't identify with any caste, is one going to be, you know, forced upon them for the purposes of uh, litigation or a particular claim? Um, secondly, it, by creating this category, it automatically assumes that these groups of people that have been named in this legislation are more inherently um, prone to discriminate because that is part of their community. That's part of their, of their group. So there's a due process issue there. The assumption is that we are discriminatory without giving us the due process of law to actually see whether we have committed any discrimination. So there's going to be a presumption of guilt. And then you need to prove that you are not guilty of being a casteist you know, are, um, you know, discriminating on the basis of caste. So there's an equal protection um, uh, implication on the face of the law. There's a due process um, implication in how the law is going to be applied. And it's going to be, um, I don't think people understand, it's going to be a mess. I think for people in India, you obviously know that there are thousands of categories uh, for caste, but there's no real definition, legal definition of caste. It's just, these are the categories that, are um, uh, that would be eligible for benefits for the uh, the quota uh, reservations, but there's no actual legal definition per se. There are just thousands of categories. So then, how is that going to apply in the U.S. when people are you know coming up with you know thousands of categories of of caste? How is that even going to be um, applied? There's no legal precedent in America. Who's going to be the arbiter of that? Who are they going to go to as experts? Um, so there are a lot of things that just haven't been thought through here. Um, and there's no real sense of the extent of discrimination in the first place. So we're not saying that if there's discrimination, it shouldn't be dealt with. It's how it should be dealt with. We believe that our existing laws are strong enough to deal with it. 
Um, many other subcategories like immigration status, language have been interpreted to fall under existing categories of law, such as ancestry, and national origin. So if there is a caste discrimination case, why can't that similarly be read into or interpreted to fall under that existing category? Why do we need to create a whole separate category of um, of, of a legal non-discrimination uh, policy? And the, the final thing is that what comes next, right? So forget about from a Indian or Hindu or South Asian perspective, but just as an American perspective, does that mean now for every single perceived problem and every single community in America, we say that there is an issue and how do we deal with that issue? By creating a new law that only applies to that particular group. So by, by, by that um, uh, argument, then we should have thousands of different you know, micro laws that apply only to specific categories. And is that the road that we're going down? I have a huge problem with this point over here that right, I think I need to share some views. It's really <laughs> annoying. So what if, Suhag, you are Julia Roberts? Hindu yeah. mm -hmm. follows the so-called South Asian system. Uh, she clearly is incapable of discriminating because she is not from all over South Asia, Southeast Asian, African community, Japan, the Middle East, Nigeria, Somalia, and Senegal. She might be Christian, Muslim, Sikh, anything, or Hindu, but she's not from those areas. So uh, this legislation, in my eye, assumes that white people are incapable of discriminating on the basis of caste, even if they convert to Hinduism. Or am I misreading this? No, that's exactly right. I mean, this amendment, I think, was a direct response to the heat that the council was feeling um, as we laid out all the legal arguments in terms of the equal protection and due process red flags. And so this shows that at least at this city council level in Seattle, they clearly don't understand how the law works, even though they're tasked with uh, creating laws. And in this case, um, you know, trying to, quote unquote, improve the laws. So this was kind of a last ditch effort. OK, no, this is not just about South Asians, right? Because initially, if you look at all the evidence that's submitted, one, they're they're turning in State Department reports about India. Well, we're not talking about India. We're talking about Indian Americans. So what do, what do ground realities in a foreign country have to do with what we're doing here today? Um, so all of the testimony in the early days, um, you know, if you go back to the February 17th hearings or even um, Council Member Salant's initial um, initial statements about this. It's all targeting South Asians. So they realized, okay, hey, wait a minute, uh, maybe this is a little bit too blatant. Um, yes, this is our real target, but we need to get smarter about this. And this, I think, was their iteration of being smarter. Let's cast the net a little bit wider to Japanese people, to Somali, Senegalese, and Nigerian people, and broadly Middle Eastern. Um, again, to the exclusion of white Seattle lights. And the fact is that Seattle is about 69 to 70% white. So um, now you have a law that's going to target a subset of whatever 30% is 
left over, all people of color, all immigrants, many of whom are refugees. And here is a council member who claims to be a champion for the rights of immigrants and refugees. So basically this legislation works on uh, the classic savior complex that usually Americans tend to have. I'm sorry, I know you two are Americans, but I say this as an Indian, uh, uh, no offense intended, but from where I come and where I see, uh, you know, this kind of preachy talking always comes from America when it comes to, you know, we're going to go there, we're going to save you and give you freedom and democracy. This is another way. <laughs> Well, it, yes and no. I, I just want to remind everyone that this council member was born and raised in India. And if you look at some of the rhetoric that she engaged in leading up to the introduction of this resolution, um, as well as this FAQ that she distributed, of, you know, to kind of bully her fellow council members into voting yes, um, she is more concerned, it almost seems like, with her gripes about politics in India and the current party in power. Uh, you know, she is a self-identified socialist. She calls anyone who opposes her right wing. Well, I suppose that makes sense when you're so far out to the left that even, you know, moderates on either side of the aisle are right wing. Um, that's just the nature of what happens when you're on one extreme. But what does a policy in Seattle and members of the Indian American community opposing it have anything to do with Prime Minister Modi? Um, but somehow in the FAQ, his name and the name of the BJP came up. So, yes, America has had a history of, you know, savior complex for sure. I don't deny that. But here, I think we're seeing a, a textbook case of someone who is as an American now uh, using that platform to try to fight uh, a political battle that really belongs in India. Uh, I mean, it's very I interesting. Yeah, sorry, Kushal, if I could just add one thing there. I So I agree with you, Swag, but I what I would say is that you know, these issues when it comes to Hindus in India, though, always seem to unite the left and the right in America. So oh, yeah. regardless of however they feel on other political issues or social or cultural issues, when it comes to issues of India, um, Hinduism, and in this case, if there's an issue of caste, even the right, they will come and support it because in their long view, this supports their overall agenda. So that's the kind of the uphill battle that we're facing around um, things like this particular legislation. Look, what bothers me about this legislation is the a priori assumption that uh, Southeast Asian, South Asian and African communities are the only communities that have hierarchies. Mm -hmm. Because whether you want to call it Jati Varna, whether you want to call it caste, it is basically a system of hierarchies. It is not like, you know, the people who were born in this landmass or these landmasses that we are talking about have were so smart and they're like, look, we can build hierarchies. And we can make them rigid. So the, the, the assumption is only these people are capable of it. Because I'll tell you the next point, which is even worse than the first point. Because this is that, you know, dirty immigrant carrying his dirt with him 
it's literally written in the law i'm sorry this is so deeply offensive the point c says and i quote the concept of caste and associated discrimination traveled with individuals and communities through these regions and into diasporic communities around the world including the united states i'm going to flip this around the concept of racism and associated discrimination traveled with individuals and communities through these regions bracket western europe russia uh, eastern europe north america oceania um, whatever white people stay wherever <coughs> so samajh jao tum log white land through these regions and into diasporic bracket because white people don't call themselves immigrant right white people in india are expats expats they have a word for them themselves they're expats around the world including the united states how do you think an average white man would feel if i if they read that it's it's that's exactly right i mean you know she uh says well some of these not particularly this attack but when you see other attacks on say hindu american uh candidates or or people uh who are looking at um being uh, having their appointments uh, approved um hindus are very often uh equated with white supremacy um ironically and here you have this sort of thing where it kind of gets flipped right and so in that sense to samir's point i wholeheartedly agree that when it comes to um these types of policies you do see kind of the further ends of both spectrums joining together um and uh championing these policies i want to point out that um unlike laws in india the united states and our equal protection laws here do not institutionalize presumptions of who's the victim and who might be a victimizer that goes back to the point that samir and i have brought up in terms of these being broad categories that are what's called facially neutral right so race no particular race is presumed to always be the perpetrator of discrimination or oppression and um no one is presumed to always be the one who's victimized this is a striking difference from say the atrocity laws in india where you have a set of uh, a a group of or rather legal or administrative categories of scheduled caste <clears throat> other backward classes and scheduled tribes that get protection right that they are there's a presumption that they've been victimized or will be victims and that anyone in the general category is always presumed to be the victimizer so if there were cases where um the same <clears throat> whatever act occurred but vice versa where it's someone from one of these legal administrated categories against someone in a general category it would not fall into the atrocities act that's not how these laws would work so ironically uh the day of the the hearing and the day of the vote you had uh people testifying you had people talking in the halls of uh city hall uh about how brahmins are basically like the the most evil set of people um ever and the fact is that regardless of whether this passed or not if we want to talk about caste discrimination well 
if you are singling out a person on the basis of their ancestry or background, that's caste discrimination. So unlike in India, where that might fly um, in the United States, whether there's a caste policy on the books or not, that sort of rhetoric, if it's going to create an environment that's hostile enough, especially in the workplace or in public accommodation, that too is a banned that you cannot engage in that sort of um, uh, hatred. Okay, now one more point that I find very interesting uh, because uh, I wonder if there is any ground data to support this assertion. This was made in point F. Awareness of the experiences of caste oppressed communities with discrimination has been growing in recent years. Now, if it is growing and it is proven with with absolute certainty, then honestly, I don't have any problem with this legislation. Yeah, so that is, uh, I think that's the, the the key issue here is that there is no data. Um, the only scientific data actually that, you know, looks at caste discrimination came from the Carnegie Endowment um, survey on Indian Americans. And that looked at a number of different types of discrimination. And when it looked at actually caste discrimination, I think it boiled down to only 2.5% reported actually facing some type of caste discrimination. And when they described it, I think in a couple of those cases, it was actually claimed that the person, the perpetrator was white or non-Indian or non-South Asian or whatever. So there may have been even a conflation of, you know, caste and some other type of discrimination. Now the type, so that's the kind of the only scientific data, which is very limited. I'll, you know, we'll definitely admit. Um, now, if you look at what the type of data that keeps being presented or keeps being used to actually support the need for these policies, it goes back to the one survey by Equality Labs, which was deeply scientifically flawed, that said that caste-based discrimination is a huge um, issue. Now, I don't remember the actual data points in that, um, but it basically made some you know, over-the-top claims about the extent and nature of it. Now, how, again, are they defining what is caste-based discrimination? Again, that's another problem. So, you know, Equality Labs and their comrades in arms um, in many of these other groups, they make assertions such as, if you ask somebody whether they are vegetarian, that is a form of caste-based discrimination. If It's a kind of a subtle uh, form of it. It's code for uh, a casteist uh, prejudice. If you um, pat somebody on the back, that means you're trying to check if they have a Janeo on, um, they're wearing a Janeo, and again, goes to caste identity. If you talk about or you take your kids to a Bal Vihar on Sundays at the Mandir, then that means that you are asserting some type of a caste identity or caste discrimination in, in the, if you're talking about that in the workplace. So these are the types of things that are being promoted and pushed as signs of whether somebody is caste or somebody engages in caste-based discrimination. Um, now, the other part of this is that when people, and a lot of this came out in testimony, when they talk about experiences of caste-based discrimination, they talk in very generalized terms. Um, there's not a lot of specificity. There's a lot of, oh, uh, we have faced violence, you know, hundreds or thousands of people have faced violence. Well, if that's happening where there's not one single police report um, that, you know, is on record, you know, basically mentioning that these people are being attacked because of caste or whatnot. Now, I can understand that there's maybe, you know, a, a fear of reporting certain things that's in general. You know, in a lot of communities, there's a fear of reporting incidents, but nothing. There's like zero, um, you know, rec reports on the record. 
Um, and so, you know, the, when they talk about this, it's in very, very generalized terms. It's conflating a lot of different issues. And there's really no actual good scientific data that looks at this issue to actually say that it is a serious issue or here is the actual extent of the issue. Now, if you contrast that with all our other non-discrimination laws, all of these civil rights laws, these are laws that came about after deeply entrenched um, issues of discrimination for years and decades, and in some cases, hundreds of years in this country. Um, and that has been studied and that has been significantly reported on. Um, and so you contrast that now with what's happening with these uh, policies on caste, and there's really nothing except some basic claims. And I don't want to, uh, you know, say that somebody hasn't faced anything. If they have, they, of course, should, you know, be able to use the law to their, uh, to, uh, to get legal redress. But, you know, we haven't heard anything with any substantial data yet. And we've heard a lot of, you know, generalized claims that are not been supported. If I can just add two things to what Samir said. One is if just to, specifically about that Equality Labs report. Um, for those respondents, first of all, sample bias, confirmation bias, they only distributed the survey amongst South Asian activist groups and Ambedkarite groups. So you already have a particular uh, slant in the population that you're serving. No major Hindu organizations or temples were included um, in that report. The second thing is that for those who did not identify by a caste or did not include a caste identification, they threw those responses out. So you're basically concentrating those people who might have uh, more of a caste consciousness. Um, they also if you came from a mixed caste background, they took the liberty of deciding which one was higher or lower and defaulting you to the lower caste. So these are things that, you know, uh, it's falsified, it's manipulated. Um, and now it's becoming the foundation for public policy. So <clears throat> to take fraudulent data and to shape public policy by that, I think is deeply problematic. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing I wanna say is, even if we had you know, scientifically verifiable data that shows that this is a growing problem, the, the caste policies on their face still remain problematic. So again, the question about what we're talking about is not whether we deal with caste-based discrimination, but how. And that how is answered by looking at other ethnic communities and the intratensions or intra hierarchies that they might have. So in um, Hispanic communities, oftentimes who has more Spanish blood versus indigenous blood becomes a point of contention. Um, amongst uh, other communities of color, who's light-skinned, who's dark-skinned, that becomes a point of contention and hierarchies are, are formed. None of those have merited special classes, the creation of special classes that apply only to them. So in that same vein, when we're talking about how do we deal with this problem, even if there's one case, that's one case too many, right? That if someone is legitimately being discriminated against because of their caste background, their ancestral background, well, let's look at existing law and see how we can find redress under that. Because these broad categories are intended to evolve as America becomes increasingly diverse. And that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing, let's not even test that policy. We're gonna go straight to demonizing this particular group of people 
on the basis of their national origin, their ethnicity, and to some extent their religion, and create a law and make them an entire class of suspect people. And that's deeply problematic. <clears throat> okay, so now I'm going to try and maybe look at it from the other perspective. Why would anybody, if I was to start with this, why should anyone oppose a law that says discrimination is bad? Who wants to take it? <laughs> I can take it. I can take it. Um, you don't need to oppose a law that says discrimination is bad. However, if that law is going to discriminate against people, a particular group of people in saying that, well, then that's discrimination. So you, what we're asking is for people to say, we don't want discriminatory laws on the books. Yeah. I'll take that a little further. Um, and, and this was not necessarily a, a law per se, but it were these were definitely policies that were utilized. You know, if we were to look back at the 80s and 90s in the U.S. Um, and how crime was handled in a lot of inner city neighborhoods um, or, you know, in neighborhoods in general, you know, now you look at the statistics, you know, the, the, the frequency of crime that was committed by certain groups like African-Americans was much higher. So what were the policies that were implicitly utilized by the police? Racial profiling, right? So racial profiling policies that they would stop those that looked African-American, regardless of whether they actually had a reasonable basis to suspect that that person had anything to do with a particular crime. Now, we can say that, well, is there anything bad or wrong with trying to stop crime? And if the statistics point to particular communities as having a higher frequency of um, committing certain crimes, then shouldn't we do what we can to stop that? Okay, so that can be true on the one hand, yes. But what is the process that we're going to utilize to stop this problem? What what are we trying to use and do to stop a problem? Are we creating a bigger problem? And are we now discriminating against an entire group of people because we want to solve one problem? So similarly in this instance, yes, we can all agree that discrimination is bad. We can all agree that in particular caste discrimination is bad. But does that mean that now to solve this problem, we want to create an entirely bigger problem and create even more discrimination in order to solve that? And that, I think, is the ultimately is ultimately what's at um, at play here is that not whether an issue um, needs to be dealt with or not, whether something is good or bad It's how do we deal with it? Right. And I think that is what is also so disturbing is that, you know, in America, we have always had people speaking out for, you know, against issues like racial profiling, like I'm mentioning, like gave an example there. Um, even the, you know, the, the profiling of Muslim Americans um, after 9-11 that was happening, people were up in arms and speaking out against that as they should have been. Um, but where, where's, where's anybody here speaking out against one community being targeted and being suspect? Yes, we can all agree that this issue of discrimination needs to be solved. But does that mean that we need to now demonize immigrant communities, uh, minority communities, both ethnically and religiously in order to solve one problem? And I think people, for some reason, it's not clicking for people um, in the way that some of these other issues have clicked. Um, and that, I think, is where our challenge is. And on the face of it, yeah, it all seems great. We're trying to solve this issue of discrimination. And you know, you have a compel when people come up with these, um, you know, testimonies or they, you know, argue that this is an issue, it's very compelling. And if for somebody that doesn't know much about these issues, you can see why they may be swayed or convinced by it. 
Um, but if you dig a little deeper and you look at what the problems that you're creating by doing something like this, you know, we hope that that will actually then bring people to understand that, you know, while it's definitely a noble cause to try to stamp out caste-based discrimination, you know, you're going to create more discrimination in the process of doing that. Yeah, but what about the point in the uh, amendment that says existing anti-discrimination protections do not fully encompass caste discrimination? So we have to create this awareness. And uh, they might say, well, sometimes the people may not know that, uh, you know, these uh, dirty Hindus, they practice this dirty system. And <laughs> we need to make a law so that these dirty Hindus know that. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll just say that that's a direct response to us saying it is covered. I mean, here you have the community saying, hey, listen, we agree. This is a bad thing. No one should be discriminated against, uh, uh, you know, discriminated against on the basis of their caste. But here's existing policies and we think we can get respite. Um, we can get protection under it uh, to just make that proclamation without even ever having tested it. I think it's irresponsible lawmaking. Uh, she has no basis to have written that because guess what? In Seattle, there hasn't actually been a single claim. And the one claim um, in the entire United States that's still a pending case is the Cisco case. And there, um, you know, we're looking, we can see it, it's almost like um, a crystal ball to see what potentially may happen when you have people who are in, you know, supposed to implement these laws come into these scenarios with these preconceived racist notions about Indians and the type of havoc that they can wreak on the lives of ordinary Indian Americans. And that's kind of what's happened in terms of basing an entire case on stereotypes um, is, is what we see in the Cisco case. I would encourage people to um, look into uh, the actual facts of the case, uh, you know, we have we have some of those facts available in terms of here you have one of the named defendants who goes out of his way to recruit John Doe, who is a self-identified Dalit. They were both classmates at IIT. Uh, and even within this larger team, the defendant had hired others who are also self-identified Dalits, one of whom was actually one of the top leaders in the division. Um, so, you know, this idea that there's rampant caste-based discrimination and everyone keeps including the Cisco case as evidence of this, um, is, is dishonest because that case is still pending. And as you look at the actual facts of the case, you realize on what type of shaky ground it rests beyond stereotypes. Yeah, I, I would just add one thing right there that in terms of, um, you know, the the allegation that, oh, well, caste-based discrimination is not covered under the law, um, therefore we need a law to explicitly call that out. I think the problem is that our non-discrimination laws are not meant to be exhaustive laundry lists of every single type or example or, you know, subcategory or sub-subcategory of a type of discrimination. Uh, what you are supposed to use are the existing laws and try to interpret um, types of discrimination and whether they fall under those existing laws. Um, and I think that hasn't been done yet. And that's the problem is that they're trying to say, well, this doesn't work without even trying to see whether it works and then going ahead and creating a law based on that. So essentially, from what I understand in American discourse these days, that gender is fluid and caste is rigid. 
<laughs> well, I, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, on two occasions now, I've had white reporters, in one case, an African-American reporter, interview me about this issue because we've been dealing with it for the past two to three years because it's not just Seattle, right? There's college campuses, a number of them that have added cast to their non-discrimination policies. And when they published the stories, I was uh, I was described as a Brahmin American. That was the first time I'd actually seen that sort of descriptor. Now, people might make assumptions because of my last name that I'm Brahmin. It happens to be my married name. Um, you know, my does it have anything to do with what I identify by, what I grew up as, what my attitudes are towards different people, what my lifestyle is? No, it's a married name. Anyways, so I call him, you know, both these reporters back. One of them, I said, okay, so you would not go as far as to presume my gender, but you're going to presume my caste. And as soon as I presented it that way, he was mortified, apologized, and they uh, you know, then he asked, well, how would you like to be identified? I said, I'd like to be identified as a Hindu American. Um, with the other reporter, um, when I brought up the same point, what they ended up doing is changing the story to say, well, Shukla refused to divulge her caste, right? So this is kind of a good example of how either presumptions are going to be made um, or uh, I mean, they both have presumptions laden in them, right? But on, on the one hand, at least there was that respect to say, okay, well, what do you identify by? Um, rather than having this patronizing approach of just making assumptions about me. And on the other, there's almost like a shaming and implicitly by saying I refuse to divulge my caste, they're essentially saying something there too. And so these are the types of presumptions I think will... Um, Kind of go into the implementation process of something like the law that we see in Seattle. Now, when we talk about uh, caste being included already under national origin and the need to test it out, what's important there is that then even in the um, investigation process where someone is tasked with implementing Title VII regulations, Title VII is this um, Act within or the section within the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that talks about uh, discrimination in the workplace. Well, you have kind of best practices on how you should conduct an investigation without it in and of itself becoming discriminatory, right? So if you're dealing with some sort of uh, baseline discrimination, say between two Asians, um, and it might be clan based or two people from the uh, you know, Muslim community where it might be sect-based, that you go into that investigation in as objective a manner as possible and ask questions so that you're really getting down to the nuts and bolts of what exactly happened to that interaction and what was the intent behind the actions that may have been discriminatory, may not have been discriminatory. When you have a category like caste, it's so laden with stereotypes. I mean, sixth graders in the United States, from sixth grade to ninth grade, you basically learn that Indian society from time immemorial to today is reduced down to a pyramid of four classes where the priests kind of rule over the rest of society and it's an oppressive structure. Now, you can go to India and you know that dynamics are very complex 
and they are rooted in things like economics, in uh, political power, uh, and and on some degree social. But India is not exceptional in the way that its society is. Every human society has its hierarchies, and those hierarchies change over time. They're not ossified into this simplistic, reductive, and racist pyramid in the way that India continues to be um, taught about, talked about, and reported about. Okay, this is going to be so much fun because I can just look at the possible things that that are going to happen. So, the, how are they going to identify the caste of the person? They go, but they'll go by the surname. Uh, there is one particular surname that America has a lot of. That surname is Patel. Mm -hmm. Patels in India are general category. So, hang, just hear this out, okay? Then they are upper backward caste, UBC. Then they are other backward caste. OBC and their schedule casts. How will they know which Patel this person is? Then they will tell the Patel, Gamada Batao. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are they going to do? Like, I just want to know how are they going to manage this? I'll give you another example from Maharashtra. So, Razurkar or Rajurkar, as people outside of Maharashtra would call it, they are both. Scheduled tribe, scheduled caste, or scheduled caste, and they are Brahmins. Mahajan or Mahajan. Mahajan is also so the same surname could be different castes in India. Now I'm talking about the same state. Now a single surname might be recognized as the other backward caste in one state in India. Because uh, OBC lists are decided by individual states, right? In India, every state has its own uh, OBC, SC, ST list. But especially in the OBC, because all these things were done after the Mandal Commission in the 80s, right? Or the OBC factor. SC, STs were decided when India was independent. Now, this is going to be so much fun. So are they going to do that that Britishers survey like they did in 1870s? Who was that guy, that white guy? Risley? or Risley. Something? Yeah, Risley. Yeah, Risley. Yeah, he went around asking, uh, you know, Risley was the original Ravish Kumar. Kaun jato? And now we're going to have American Ravish Kumar. So like, Kaun jato? Batao. And imagine, like, uh, I, I completely understand, you know, our uh, our common friend, Razib Khan, says, I identify as a LGBTQIAA Dalit Muslim. <laughs> no, he's right. Go figure that shit out. Because how are they going to know? How are they going to figure out? And this law clearly doesn't apply just to the Hindu community. It applies to the Sikh community too. It's not like the Sikh community, Sikh community doesn't practice all this. They also do. And then the, the best is going to be the Buddhist community. Like I can rat off verse after verse in Buddhist texts that are casteist. I just did a damn podcast presentation showing what is so uniquely casteist about Hinduism. I hear I literally stated primary sources from Buddhist texts. And lo and behold, Ambedkar never practiced anything out of Hindu, uh, Buddhism. Ambedkar just picked Buddhism. It was not like he was a practicing Buddhist or anything. He was like, I have to pick something. So he picked Buddhism. But I can share verses after verses from Buddhism, which are like blatantly casteist. So the Buddhists are also going to go through it. So how are these people going to... Like, did they actually think that laws also have to be executed? Right. Well, I just I just want to say I know Samir is going to have something to say about um, at least some of the things that you said, but I'll just say that we also have to keep in mind it's not just a they on who's implementing 
these policies, but it's also the presumption that each of us recognize surnames, first of all, where and what part of India they come from, because we're not just talking about immigrants. We're talking about folks like us who are born and raised here, our children who are now three generations out. My grandchildren will be four generations out. So how long are they supposed to be presumed to, uh, one, perhaps carry any privileges uh, that uh, are presumed to be part of their ancestral background, but second, that they're going to even recognize these differences. I mean, quite honestly, I meet people from places that are, you know, outside of, I, I know most Gujarati last names. I don't necessarily know what kind of background they are, but I know that they're Gujarati. However, if I meet someone who's from Andhra Pradesh or Orissa or whatever, I don't even, just hearing the last name, I don't even know what part of India they're from, let alone what caste background they might be and then where they might, you know, sit in that localized hierarchy. So there's a lot of presumptions, not just about those who the confusion that those implementing a caste policy would face, but even the presumptions that are being made about Indians in America. Um, so if you listen carefully to a lot of the rhetoric around this issue, there's a term that now keeps getting thrown around dominant caste. Right. So a lot of people won't even say, oh, I am from, you know, this particular caste or that particular caste. They'll say dominant caste. So that's meant to be kind of a in their minds, a catch all that would basically apply to anyone that is not a Dalit or Bahujan. Um, I, I believe that's the strategy here. So, um, no, again, even so Jet Sikhs, uh, I just want to intervene here. So Jet yeah. Sikhs are a dominant caste in Punjabs and they are a very dominant caste in North America too. So they are the Brahmins of North America. Congratulations. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you know, it's funny because they, they parade. Okay. I won't use that terminology. They have a couple of people that add in um, testimony or kind of experiences about facing discrimination at the hands of Jet Sikhs also um, that talk about that in the community. Of course, it's kind of very much on the periphery. Uh, but if this gets really implemented and it really actually gets, you know, pursued to its fullest extent, the Sikh community in America is probably going to get hit the hardest because that's actually where you see the most, the, the actual separation where, where they have separate Gurdwaras for the Ravidasi, Ravidasiya communities. Um, you don't see that in the Hindu community. There's no separate mandars. And for... anybody who says these things don't exist, I have the entire caste-based list of Gurdwaras in the <laughs> state of Ontario right now on my laptop, which obviously I will not share with anyone. <laughs> <laughs> exactly so that you know goes to the the problem right there and yeah you know you're exactly right about the names like where do you how do you even know a name when it can be so diverse in terms of how it um you know what list it may or may not go in depending on regional locations and other factors so this is basically you know they're opening up a can of worms that they have no idea what's happening to some of them like shama Savant, they don't care they probably want to create chaos right these people they they thrive on chaos they thrive on anarchy you know as a as kind of a hardcore socialist she probably wants to uproot the system right that's that's her in, intent now for maybe the well-meaning you know, white person that doesn't know much about it or the other person, they just have no idea what they're getting into. And and no one has really explained it to them on purpose is into what it's going to happen or how it's going to be implemented. And that's the problem. See, the problem is not just that. The problem is the presumption of guilt 
That is the biggest problem. This is when you start. This is my problem with the entire Ibrahim X Kendi worldview too. That if you are not an anti-racist, then you are a racist. Yeah. This is exactly a cut, copy, paste of the Ibrahim X Kendi worldview on this. And like I see, you know, I I call these people who push this, whether it's Shama Savant or whether it's uh, uh, the Equality Labs lady. Uh, you know, these are saste Ibrahim X Kendi. I don't even call them equal to Ibram X Kendi. They're the cheaper versions of Ibram X Kendi. You know, they, you know, Ibram X Kendi might charge six thousand dollars per head. You know, these guys will go for like five hundred to six hundred dollars. That's about it. I mean, you know, you know how it is. These are tough times, so you got to cut some slack to these people too. So, and these are my words. These are not the words of the Hindu American Foundation. So, don't take it out on them. Take it out on me. I will say, I'll say worse things. Uh, I've just gotten started. But once again, uh, can I just say uh, that my disappointment also comes from the community that the community still doesn't get it that how can they defend something like this? And I'm not taking you guys as the example. I'm saying I talk to the people in the community in North America and there is still denialism about casteism. Why can't you just say we have nothing to do with it? And, and here's the thing. So I, when I talk to people and I say, Look, if a child is born in North America, which Suha, both you and Samir, you are a prime example of that. How the hell would you know about your caste? Nobody does. My wife didn't. Uh, many people uh, like Suha, you have children. They don't. They don't know. It's not even a matter of discussion. And you, then they will say, "This is this is the argument." So I, I'm going to take you through the entire back and forth. Somebody will come. Oh, look at this. There is Brahmin Samaj over there. There is this Samaj over there. This is just first generation Indians went to America and they carried some of their habits with them. What has a second or third generation Hindu, Sikh or whatever, etc, etc has got to do with that. But is that unique just to these communities? Like I was just searching, you know. Anthony of Padua Church, Bronx. Anthony of Padua Church, Ma Claire of Assisi's Church, Bronx. Joseph Church, Chinatown. Peter's Italian Church, Syracuse. Why is it called an Italian church? Why not just church? You know, it's an Italian. Like, I can type the community and you will find a direct connection to their sub-tribe and they have a like a con conference over there are are these people told oh you are parochial tribal people who brought your tribal identity from that bloody place called italy into north america <laughs> how dare you make a church called the italian church only the hindus are beat with this thing see this is this entire discourse assumes of a guilt be before you are guilty by default there is no nothing look if i am a person who like, there is nobody more anti-caste than me. I want the damn system to be nuked. But I get it. There are problems in India. But what has that child born in North America got to do with the system? And the, the, the evidence is, I found one Brahman Samaj on Facebook. You are exposed. What happens in that Brahman Samaj? Does that Brahman Samaj not allow anything else? The second thing Suhag they say is, oh, but do you see them marrying any Dalits? Hang on, is it that child's fault? Is that child at fault that he will actually or she will actually go out there and search for Dalit Americans now or Dalit Canadians now? That, 
85% of the population or 90% an overwhelming number of hindus i am talking about hindus in north america and i'm sorry i'm taking a lot of time but i have to say this because it is for your defense not mine they they it they did not choose what people migrated outside india it's by accident that a particular general category indian migrated outside india for multiple reasons they stayed there they had children now the sample available to marry uh and 30% of indian americans i think now or or 20% i forgot the number they do marry outside their community itself right they marry outside but they still have one of the higher rates of marriage inside the community i know that too but the point is this is so weird most of them are the what is called general category over there so now they have to be blamed for not getting married to dalits i mean i don't get this my rant is over <laughs> well i'll just say like even even in the within the community what are we talking about i mean so many of our friends are interlinguistic couples right like just anecdotally um even if you look at the folks here at HAF some people have married um non-indian people of non-indian origin and of other religions but even within those who married other people of indian origin you have you know cross ancestral background whether it's linguistic whether it's caste background whatever it might be but those are not what's going into the deciding factor of whether you marry someone or not the first time i actually heard the word caste was in ninth grade from my white world history teacher why because it is the single most entrenched stereotype by which india historically as well as modern times is taught about talked about and imagined so i think that we cannot get away from the fact that even if um you know there might be books like isabel wilkerson that's trying to kind of blow out caste in a sense of it being a global issue the association of it with indians specific indians generally south asians even generally but hinduism specifically is not something we can just brush under the rug and that's why this becomes deeply problematic is that it's just kind of now it's going from narrative to institutionalizing as policy so now i'll probably try to ask but uh, again i'm going to ask this question so somebody might come back to you is that you guys have a problem with this samir because you guys are caste denialists sure um i don't even know what that means but sure <laughs> um i can explain it to you yeah please you I, I, i'm being okay, a little so, fascist fascist but no no uh, yeah. no so a caste <laughs> denialist is a person who says there is no such thing as caste oppression um the they 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 believe hinduism never did any such thing so that is why they are opposing any kind of legislation like this sure So I mean look I think that is a straw man's argument right and that's kind of meant to just distract people um from what the real issue is here but just indirectly in response to that you know on the record from the beginning we have never denied that there's been issues around caste whether in India and even here we've kind of allowed for that you know that um that possibility and said that yes there very well may be issues that are happening here in the US and they need to be dealt with 
And so, you know, we have been very clear on the record and that's in all of our materials and even in our um, um, education and technical reform materials, um, on our statements, um, our legal briefs, everything on this issue, anything related to caste, we have always been very clear that, um, you know, we abhor caste-based discrimination and it should be, um, you know, dismantled in wherever it occurs and it should be fought wherever it occurs. So we've been very clear on that. So we have never denied that there may be an issue here in the U.S. or that there is an issue in general around caste-based discrimination around in other parts of the world, India, South, other parts of South Asia, et cetera. Um, so, you know, our issue is just, okay, so how do we deal with it? You know, let's, 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 you know, let's all agree that there is an issue. How do we, how do we deal with it? What do we do about it? And that I think is the crux of the issue is, you know, to deal with it effectively. Again, we don't want to create more discrimination and we don't want to, you know, target an entire community and say, you guys are discriminatory and we're assuming you're discriminatory from day one. And we're going to police you. Basically, we're going to police you. That's what they're saying. We're going to profile you. We're going to police you in a certain way because you, Hindu American, Indian American, South Asian American, and for the purposes of Seattle, Japanese American, um, and Senegalese American, and you other three or four groups are not capable of abiding by American non-discrimination laws. And you, therefore... This so this yes this goes back to the concept of this white man's burden and this kind of um, you know we need to do this because you are not capable of doing it yourself and that's the issue here and that's where this is opening up a whole can of of worms and more discrimination so you know we have always been clear that we are against caste based discrimination and that we you know acknowledge that has been an issue um, and different points in history and contemporary times it's an issue and needs to be dealt with but. You know, in doing in trying to address that issue, you know, we are going down a very dangerous path in this country. And if Seattle is the watershed moment where this just opens up other cities following suit, you know, we're going to as a community are going to really be in trouble. And as you noted, the community has not woken up to the issue. And those that have woken up to the issue, I'm sorry to say, in many cases, don't know how to adequately address the issue and sometimes create more problems by just trying to be the loudest voice in the room. And that doesn't always work. This needs to be handled in a very sophisticated, strategic manner. Um, and that's not always been the case, unfortunately. So let me channel my inner... Uh... Ibram X. Kendi and say, it's not good enough to say we oppose caste-based discrimination. You have to be anti-caste. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, we're, we're anti-caste-based discrimination too. I mean, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I mean, we, we yeah, we, we are. And for that, you need to support this legislation. Yeah, that's where I, that's my line that I can't do. Um, because, and, and that's, you know, that's the false narrative here. I think that they're saying is that, that the only way you can be supportive of those communities that have faced discrimination is to support this type of bill. And that's the trap that they put out there. And, you know, people fall into it because, you know, our, if you, we were talking about second and third generation, um, Hindu Americans, our second and third generation kids that are in college right now, they have no clue they probably had no clue about their caste or any of these issues, but they're jumping on board these issues because they want to make sure that they can not be seen as being an oppressor. Um, they want to make sure that they are seen as being supportive of this. Otherwise, they're going to get demonized themselves um, on college campuses. And it's hard enough as it is to, you know, to get through college, you know, and making sure that you fit in and all those other issues. But now with this issue, 
I mean, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing college kids, you know, lining up for testimonies at C in Seattle and other places across the country saying, oh, I'm from a dominant caste community and I support this legislation. You know, my parents are were bigots, you know, X, Y, and Z person is a bigot. And therefore, you know, we need to, um, you know, support this legislation, you know, because if they don't say that, they're going to be named and shamed. I, I want to bring up the fact that, you know, Kushal, you gave the example of uh, Patels and the complexity of, of what type of status they might have under Indian laws and depending on where they are. Um, you know, there was one young college student who said, my name is so-and-so Patel and I'm a dominant caste. And it kind of made me chuckle because here's a student who's obviously, you know, moved by uh, a sense of social justice, um, but doesn't really know the complexity of even his own community uh, because he's second generation and his entire experience has been here in the United States. The other point I want to also raise um, is that those Dalit and Bojan voices that don't believe Equality Labs represents them, that don't believe that this um, new policy is actually going to protect them and see the writing on the wall in terms of how it might uh, impact what is actually a success story in terms of India's affirmative action policies and the number of now non-general category Indians who are able to come to the United States and uh, prosper here. So um, those voices are ignored uh, when, and in fact, uh, council member Kshama Savant also, you know, when someone said, one of her other fellow council members said that, um, well, we've heard from this one organization, that's a Dalit Bojan organization, that they oppose this. She said something so patronizing about that group. Like, well, they don't, they basically don't know any better. Um, I mean, talk about casteism there. Like, who is she to tell this group that wants to oppose a proposal that come from the community that supposedly are the, you know, oppressed that she's representing that, well, their voice doesn't count because they don't agree with my way of doing things, of my way of trying to help them. Like, it's just the height of patronizing an entire group and taking away their voice, which is what she did. See, I'm just wondering what's the end game in all of this. And I want to start taking the audience questions because we have a lot of questions from the audiences and I want to ask all of them. Like, how are they going to figure this 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 out? Like, uh, So, for example, there's a Jat Sikh Gurdwara. It's not going to be allowed now. You can't be just a Jat Sikh Gurdwara. Then if that's the case, then, you know, there might be Ramgadiya Gurdwaras or Valmiki Samaj Gurdwaras also. There are, by the way... I have addresses. There are. So what? They're, then they're going to do that uh, reverse uh, operation Olympics. And they're like, no, Ramgadiya Gurdwaras are allowed. Jet Sikh Gurdwaras are not allowed. Or maybe the Jet Sikh Gurdwaras are allowed because they are oppressed by the Hindutva fascists. So they are allowed. Like I don't understand this stupid system is all I'm saying. Best of luck. That's all <laughs> I can say. Now let's take questions because there are tons of questions, believe me. So I'll start from uh, one question. Okay, Samir, how is the attitude of an average American towards Hindus in general? Do they view that a majority of Hindus practice the caste system, drink Gau Mutra and worship stones? <laughs> um, <laughs> 
Uh, well, maybe, but no, I think, you know, you know, this is the, this is the, you know, the whole irony of all of this. I think in general, the average American has had a positive interaction with Hindus. Now, what they may think theoretically about Hinduism or what they may like have heard about, you know, certain issues may be different, but the positive interactions that we see across the country that Hindu Americans have had with their non-Hindu neighbors and average American neighbors is by and large been a very positive one. And they have respected, you know, Hindu Americans in terms of what they've contributed to their local communities, you know, what they've done, you know, in order to kind of, you know, emphasize, you know, education and be involved in the schools and, you know, working hard. And so in general, there's been a positive interaction and a positive impression. Now, the irony is that these types of things color, further color the perceptions now, because now when these policies and these laws come up, now automatically the question is going to be, oh, you know, I heard about this law, you know, you guys discriminate on caste. So instead of basically interacting with somebody now without any preconceived notions, these things are going to actually add to preconceived notions and are going to further, you know, I think alienate, you know, Americans from their, I sorry, Hindu Americans from their general American, um, you know, uh, uh, colleagues and neighbors and et cetera. All right, Suhag, the next question is for you. Mm -hmm. uh, someone has asked, could you talk a little bit about the impact of the legislation uh, on corporate employers who are located in Seattle, especially using this diversity, equity, inclusion terminology, or as I call it, the religion of DEI? Yeah, I mean, this this is kind of a South Asian iteration of, of kind of larger trends of kind of dividing people up on these, you know, constructs of oppressor and oppressed. And, um, you know, if you look at, I think it was the New York Times that recently had an article, surprisingly, about how some of these trends are actually leading to less thriving in the workplace, um, rather than bringing people together for the common purpose of whatever that company's goals are, we're dividing people up making the workplace uh, a very uncomfortable place because you really don't know what you can and cannot say because intent really doesn't seem to matter anymore um, in some of these trainings um, or in, in some of the conversations around, um, you know, how we treat one another. And so, um, you know, earlier in our conversation, we talked about some of the things that have been portrayed as indicators of caste-based discrimination, or at least casteism, that's dietary um, practices. Like if you're vegetarian, you're somehow signaling that you're of a particular caste and that by asking that you're trying to garner that information. Um, these same activist groups have also demonized things like Holi and Diwali. So where in corporate America, we're talking about diversity and, you know, the celebrations of holidays are trying to move past just celebrating Christmas um, to maybe celebrating now or talking about Diwali or Holi and all these things. What's going to be the comfort level when the same activist groups that were successful in pushing through a discriminatory policy are, are also marketing in the same breath their own caste competency trainings for a fee, by the way. So you create a, you create the, um, the perception of a problem, then you push to get a policy made to address that problem, and then you profit off the problem. And so, 
you know, if you look at the budget in the Seattle ordinance, they are talking about $185,000 in the first year, $100,000 thereafter. It would probably entail getting quote unquote cast experts to help the average implementer of these policies to navigate this morass. But the people who are like. What is a caste expert? Someone that practices casteism on a daily basis? <laughs> Probably. I mean, they're definitely um, out there with posters that say smash Brahminical patriarchy. So um, at least under the American construct, there's not going to be. Yeah, now you have caste as a specific policy. That means anyone of any background. And the people who are engaging in the most vocal vitriol are these activists who are demonizing the Savarnas or the Brahmins or, or whatever else. So um, that is going to be kind of the chilling effect, I think, that we'll see in um, corporate America where, and we already see it. Look, when the Cisco case happened, um, when it was filed, it was really unprecedented for a state agency to put out such a media blitz behind a case so that you're basically asking for trial by by crowd or you know by the mob as opposed to trial by jury right where essentially they put out all these press releases before they've even carried out the case um in court and so guilt is presumed and so now that cisco case um even though it's still pending becomes evidence of widespread caste-based discrimination. So we were getting inquiries from people working in tech companies in California where, you know, a, a well-meaning white administrator, say for instance, starts a Slack channel on caste discrimination. And that just unleashes all these hateful uh, posting of hateful articles about um, Hinduism being casteist, how it's an oppressive construct and all these types of things so that the average Indian tech worker who may be on an H-1B wants to keep their head down because they know that if they say anything or whatever, it may just be easier for the corporation to just fire them and they're not really going to have much. They have 60 days to find a new job or they're out of here, right? So it creates a really abusive and hostile environment for your average Indian worker. Yeah, so maybe, so now in the future, they might ask for caste certificates for immigrants from India. That's that's one possibility. How are they going to do it with second and third generation, fourth generation, whatever, American kids? Best of luck. Best of luck to them. <laughs> yeah, they can, they can do it with the Indians born and raised in India. I don't know how they're going to manage it with... Uh, the ones who live there. And you know, on this whole vegetarianism and Brahminism thing, like seriously, what the hell? Uh, white man practices veganism is so progressive. It's so awesome. And uh, Indian does it. Like, do they realize there are, I'm not saying they are more than, let's say, Brahmins, but definitely there is a huge chunk, especially in Northern India, of scheduled caste, scheduled tribe communities that are vegetarian by choice. They practice vegetarianism since centuries. Mm -hmm. It's it's a part of their religious identity. Are these people going to tell them how to live their life? Do they realize how complex this structure is? Right. Do they realize how diverse India is? Or are they just using this? And, and you know, uh, this is going to be my closing comment, but I'll just say it now. They don't know how to deal with Modi. All these people, right? Like the Samans or Samant, whatever her surname is, or uh, 
the equality lab see they are playing their indian politics by hitting not you guys let me be very clear this is going to hit indian passport holders more than you guys I, i'm being very open and honest here i'm not undermining the problems your kids are going to face so please don't misunderstand me but what i'm trying to say is this is going to be a stick they will always use to beat especially the h1b holders from india mm-hmm. yeah. yeah you know uh, just go show that just to follow up on that point actually that's a great point because if you look at the cisco case originally there was a lot of rhetoric around there about the disproportionate number of indian h1b um workers in the tech comp- in the tech industry and in tech companies in silicon valley in particular if you look as you pointed out in the seattle ordinance when it talks about diasporic communities and then bringing this with them so there is a very very in some cases subtle and in some other cases not so subtle attempt i think to also undermine the indian immigrant uh h1b visa holder and worker that has kind of you know worked very hard and and um establish a great place for themselves in the tech industry so there this is a shot at them as well specifically um beyond just this kind of general broader um you know south asian community etc specifically at that particular group of immigrant workers yeah well best of luck to them well what what can you do so are equality labs related to the dravida munatera kalagam in um, in any way uh dmk if you guys don't know what i'm talking about it's a political uh, outfit in india yeah. practicing yeah. perryism uh i don't know if there's any formal connection but i wouldn't be surprised if politically they would echo some of the same positions it's certainly a shared ideology yeah. um for sure all right fair enough okay uh has the hindu american foundation met with the mayor's office or intends to or anything somebody has asked very specifically Yeah. Um we are definitely working with local leaders um to meet with and communicate with the mayor, with the mayor's staff, um with the city council. Um sorry, city legal council. Uh anytime I say council people are assuming C O U N C I L but also C O U N S E L. Uh so we're you know trying to reach out to the city attorney about our concerns uh so that work is still ongoing uh but we also have a uh, a pending lawsuit um one in Cisco in uh you know opposing the manner in which California has targeted uh the Hindu community in its quest to prove caste based discrimination by um equating caste with hinduism and um also treating hindus and indian people people of indian origin in a manner that's quite different from the way any other uh group of people is treated so we have an ongoing lawsuit um there on the grounds of um religious freedom and religious freedom not in the way that many activists are trying to warp that we want to hold on to our religious right to discriminate no what the constitution has been interpreted as saying is that uh the state cannot interpret religious doctrine so by the state of california equating uh, a discriminatory caste based discrimin- uh discriminatory system as an inherent practice of hinduism is in effect defining 
uh, Hinduism. And so on that basis, as well as equal protection and due process, um, we're also supporting two faculty members um, who are uh, at the Cal State University system where a similar policy was added to college system-wide poli uh, policies, non-discrimination policies, having added caste. So that too is pending. So all of these things in one way or the other will get some sort of clarity, we're hoping, on the legal front on how uh, targeting a particular uh, ethnic group is mm. unconstitutional. So the next question is, what if all Hindus start identifying as Dalits? <laughs> what do they do then? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think it really is going to make a difference uh, because it doesn't matter what background you're you're from, because the way that this policy has been implemented, it demonizes all people of South Asian origin, uh, regardless of, of caste background. It's not going to make a difference. Um, Shama Samant has basically scored a self goal in demonizing all South Asians of all backgrounds. <laughs> Well, what can I say? It is entertaining. Now, this question is asked to you guys, but I don't think so. You guys should be answering this, but I will. Isn't it discrimination like quotas and reservations that don't help general categories in India that leads to disproportionate numbers of GCs outside India? No, that is not the reason. There are multiple reasons for that. Number one, India was a socialist third world hellhole. There, I said it. That's why people left that country. They were not dancing in the aisles in India, first of all. And by the time, uh, check out the major migrations out of India. It is not just in the 90s. It happened in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s. Huge migrations. Was the Mandal Commission for, uh, implemented then? You only had SCST quotas then. Why were people going then? There was only 26-27% reservation at that time. But still, Indians were leaving India in hordes. The primary reason for all of that was India was a socialist hellhole. It's only after the 90s that the Indian economy opened up and many things started to change. And it is only after the current dispensation has actually simplified a lot of laws. Yes, do check out the committees headed by Bibek um, Debroy where they have simplified laws in this country. That's when you will realize what is happening. So this is uh, a false accusation about uh, the reservation system. Migration out of India was happening because of many, many reasons. This is the least. People go for economic opportunities. And there are enough economic opportunities in India. And now you see... A, so tell me now when a so-called general category person comes back to India, why are they coming back now? The reservation system still exists? Do you know how many people I know who are general category who have left everything bag and baggage in United States of America and have come back? So... Uh, and the highest number of migration even today out of India in one unique set is millionaire Indians who are leaving in India and buying citizenships of uh, America and Canada. Are they oppressed in India? They are multi-millionaires in India. Go and check articles. So please don't form, form such ridiculous opinions and start uh, <laughs> confusing things. This is not based on any data. And go check, even under the Modi regime, the number of millionaires migrating outside India still continues. It has not stopped. Anyways, my rant is over. Now, before uh, we wrap today's discussion up, I will uh, give the 
the last word again to Suhag and uh, Samir. So Suhag, you first and then Samir. Sure. I just want to say that a lot of these kind of group identity politics kind of erase the individual experience. So it's, of course, there's there's a time when it's appropriate to look at trends, um, you know, on a community level, but we can't lose sight of the individual. And, and I think that's what a lot of these conversations, whether it's in the context of caste or racism or whatever else, um, tries to obscure. And, um, and that's why I think that it is such a divisive trend um, that is going to keep people from being able to engage with one another, to learn from one another, and to accept one another. And um, so we're going to do our best um, to ensure the safety of just not just Indian and South Asian and Hindu Americans, um, but I think that there's going to be a benefit for all Americans because um, this is a trend. Um, and so whatever we can do to bring us back to kind of a, a place where we can not make assumptions about one another, treat one another with equal respect and, and dignity, um, that should be our goal. Yeah. yeah, and I think, you know, I give um, the benefit of the doubt to America and the American people because, you know, we sometimes overcorrect for certain issues and we go in one direction. And that's where we are today, I think, as, as Sohag mentioned, the trends, the political trends, everything that's happening. This has created a perfect storm that has allowed these types of caste policies and laws to be implemented. But I think if you look at generally what's happening in America, there's a lot of pushback um, against some of these trends. And I think at some point, Americans are going to wake up and they're going to see that similarly, these types of caste-based laws and policies are not consistent with American ideals and principles and values. And I think there's going to be, we're at some point going to get that, um, that support from the general American population. And there's going to be a pushback against the, this type of um, you know, uh, attempt to, you know, add these laws everywhere across the country. So I am while the in the short term, obviously, it's been a challenge. Over the long run, I am optimistic. I'm optimistic about America and Americans, and that we are going to be able to pull ourselves out of this uh, morass. All right. And just to back my point, this is a report. 8000 millionaires migrated from India in 2022, says report. And India is ranked third on the list after Russia and China. So please digest uh, and think about why these people are leaving. Most of them are leaving for obvious reasons. But this is a very serious issue. Once again, before I wrap today's discussion up, I actually want to, I'm grateful to Suhag and Samir both for coming today and talking about this is, once again, I've always maintained this. When it comes to the issue of caste, actually, Suhag and I also have certain disagreements, but that does not matter. My, opon my opposition to Jati Varna as a system, which I believe is a third-rated system, and it should be thrown in the dustbin of history as a third-rated system. And uh, no matter what the British tried, it was third-rated even before the British and the Muslims came in. Again, my view, not HAF's view. So do not mix one with the other. They can speak for themselves, but I will speak for myself. It's a third-class, third-rated system. But that does not mean that a child that is born in the United States of America has any kind of caste consciousness. And by caste consciousness, I mean 
having an active mind that tries to discriminate by merely knowing that there is something like the caste system and apparently ancestrally i belong to this caste makes you conscious about the caste system then you are a dumbass because in that sense everybody knows their italian identity uh their uh, jewish identity their muslim identity uh, we are all nominally identified to something but what is worrying about this and i always said this to indians who keep whining about oh american woke culture is going to destroy india oh bhaiya i always told you it is the indian woke culture that was going to destroy america so there you go you cannot get this in india we already had it we <laughs> sent it over there so if you are an american or a canadian or a australian or anyone in western europe the one person you should not allow in your country is a socialist marxist indian they will destroy your nation and i say this with full responsibility do not let them immigrate to your country and destroy your wonderful country which is based on individualism hum log to group think hell hole hain hamare yahan pe koi individual nahi hai we are a hell hole that only looks at group think and the new fashion of decoloniality has been added to that group think we already had shitty systems and now we have added one more city system to it we are the ones who are ruining it and in the process we'll ruin it for all those innocent children who are born there ala usko apni jaat nahi malum usko apna surname nahi malum usko apna religion nahi malum aur tumne jaake uske upar mathe pe likh diya kaun ja to so people who are formulating this again at the forefront are indians from india who went there and they're like yaar ye ibramax candy to bade paise bana raha hai yaar ये तो चीटिंग हो गई यार मैं भी तो थोड़े पैसे बनाऊ वो देखो वो रॉबिन डीएंजलो ने बुक लिख दी इतने पैसे बना रही है हम भी पैसे बनाएंगे दिस इज जस्ट अनदर स्कीम आई विल गिव यू अनदर एनालॉजी यू नो इन इंडिया व्हेन वी रन आवर फैक्ट्रीज देयर आर पीपल हु गो आउट देयर एंड देयर मस्ट बी द लोकल यू नो हसलर इन द लोकल एरिया दैट कम्स टू एंड सेस इफ यू डोंट डू दिस 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 लाइक higher x and if you don't hire x fine pay me this bribe monthly and i will let you work this is exactly what this new firauti system it is a system of new sophisticated left wing gangs who follow the danda have this danda of diversity equity inclusion and they go and beat everyone the reality in my view is going to be all corporates because you see too many ceos of indian origin and hindus are becoming ceos this is not nice we need to do something about it so what will they do they will go and say oh all these are brahmins what will these companies do now we got to work we'll put some face over there just as a time pass ke liye by the way indian multinationals bhi ye karte hain you know they will put some lefty in some corner they will give him a nice cabin give him a nice you know 60 70 80 lakh 1 crore ki pagar this is you create nuisance value and then you extract money corporates will just throw money to shut them up isko bolte hain firoti ka paisa hindi mein to ye hone wala hai aur yahi hoga in america everything gets solved by money and i know this will also get solved by money but once again suhag and uh, samir thank you very much uh, for coming to the podcast and i hope you guys have a great next decade in america <laughs> thank you <laughs>
<laughs> Thanks, Kushal. Thanks, Kushal, for those uh, positive notes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So before we wrap up, once again, uh, in the description of the podcast, you will have the Twitter handle of Suhag of the Hindu American Foundation and the website link of the Hindu American Foundation. These guys are doing great work. So if you can go and support them in whatever way possible, monetarily, uh, by becoming a volunteer or whatever, you, the, the, the website has uh, stated everything, uh, uh, the ways in which you can support them. So go and support them if you can. Um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know the drill. Please like this video. Leave your comments in the comments section and subscribe to the Charvak podcast. This podcast, the reason I am the way I am and I am unabashedly rude at times is because I don't do ads. I don't rely on ads. I rely on members. So if you want me to be the way I am, please become a member of this podcast so you can become a member on YouTube or Patreon or, or Fanmo if you are a UPI lover in India. Or you can buy the merch or send your donations to UPI. I will see you all next time with another interesting discussion. Until then, namaste, take care, bye.